I also would like to extend my welcome to you today if you're visiting. It's uh, wonderful to have you here today to celebrate the, the child dedications and just to worship God together. It's always a good thing to do. As part of our, our church, we believe that the Word of God is very important to us, and that's the Bible. So we're going to spend the next uh, 40, 45 minutes just looking at God's Word together. Uh, it's, a, it's encouraging for us, for those who believe in Christ. It's also a challenge for us who, who don't. You know, because within our society, we consistently get confused and mixed messages. I pick up a, a newspaper, look at a, a piece of media on the television or on the internet, and you will see confusion everywhere over all sorts of issues. And unfortunately, this is uh, not the only domain in which we have confusion. It also occurs inside the church. And I think the topic that we're discussing today is one of those areas where confusion can reign. And it's in the whole area and topic of suffering. I think uh, you know, within the church, within the wider evangelical community, there are some very unhelpful views that are promoted by some in the whole area of, of suffering. A very unbalanced type of view where the balance swings all towards blessing, where the balance swings all towards material wealth and prosperity, where the balance swings that you are not blessed because you do not have enough faith. Those types of things are untrue. Those types of things are not biblical, and we will discover that today as we look at this letter in First Peter. Those types of views are a man-centered at the best. They're all about having your best life now. They're all about having God's blessing upon you in this place. And that's not the biblical view that we've been discussing through First Peter. It's not the New Testament view that we get as we look through these different letters of instruction and as we even see Jesus' words through the gospel. He said, if you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and follow. And that will be a balance of blessing and suffering. So then, as we, we think through this topic today, what is your response to suffering? How do you respond? Conversely, how does your response or the suffering that you are going through at this present point in time, because if I, I did a straw poll across those seated here, I'm sure most of us would say, yes, I am suffering for this, that, and the other thing, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's slander, whether it's reviling. How does that suffering lead you to glory? And how do we balance the truths of suffering and blessing. And 
I think the portion that we're going to read today is, is going to be very helpful in answering these questions. So please turn with me to, to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 8 through to the end of the chapter, verse 22, but this morning we're really going to discuss from verse 13 through to 22, but I want to have the, the portion in context for you. Hey, let's stand up. Let's stand up and read God's Word together. It's always a good thing. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Peter chapter 3. If you haven't got a Bible, please come and grab one up front here and um, read with me. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to do this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You may be seated. See, last week we started this portion of Scripture, the final sort of part of chapter 3, and in the first four verses we looked at the, what our approach to suffering and slander should be. We looked at it internally from inside the church, and we looked at it externally. You had the five internal attributes and characteristics that should shape every one of us who have faith in Christ, Right? Those characteristics are, are things like having a unity of mind, having a humble mind towards one another, showing sympathy and compassion and, and a tender heart. And all those things are, are accumulated in, in the one command of brotherly love, love one another. That should be internally how we behave towards one another. And then externally, we, we saw the attitude towards one another who malign us and slander us because of our stance over the truth or our stance over elements of the gospel. Shouldn't be to take revenge. 
It shouldn't be to speak against that person with slander and reviling. But your response should be to bless. We talked last week, that's a really difficult thing to do. It can only be done in the power of the Spirit of God working through you. And to bless somebody, the greatest thing that you can bless somebody with is to call upon the name of God, call upon the Lord's favor and mercy to be upon those who are persecuting you. That means we need to be praying for our enemies. That means we need to be loving our enemies. That means we should be calling out to God to show them the same mercy that he has shown us. You see, that type of response is a response that only comes deep from within the heart of someone who loves his Savior or her Savior. Because at the heart of of that type of response is that you have a, a living hope A heart that understands that God is the rightful judge and he will rightly judge one day. This type of response shows that you are standing firm in God's grace, which is the key theme of this letter. God's grace is shaping you in such a way that you want to bless those who curse you. You want to love your enemies. God's grace is empowering you in such a way that it's, it's giving you a heart for those who are against you. It's giving you a heart to stop and pray for your enemies. So that's a summary of the, the first four verses of this section. And now we, we're into the next part of it, and it's a continuation of of these final comments about suffering for the sake of Christ. That would be the broad broad, uh, title, if you like. I'll just reread the the next paragraph again for you, verse 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. This section starts with a rhetorical question. It's a question, right? Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? What is the obvious answer there after reading the context of the passage? The obvious answer is no one. There's no one there to harm me if I'm doing good, if I'm zealous for God, if I'm, if I'm living my life in front of the world for the sake of Christ. Even though they may attempt to harm me, there is no one that can actually harm me. It even lines up with the last sentence of the previous verse. Why? Because the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Grab hold of that Christian friend. As you fight the good fight, as you, as you seek to proclaim Christ in the, in the workplace, in your schools, in your, in your, amongst your family, 
Realize that when people slander and, and revile you for what you believe, they cannot harm you. They cannot harm you. Because the face of the Lord is against those types of people. So don't have a fear of man. Have a fear of God. And put your best foot forward in that regard. So we have that rhetorical question. Who can harm me if I'm zealous for God? No one. Because the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then Peter explains it further in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So it's a further clarification of this rhetorical question. Some uh, versions of our Bible, you may have a different version in front of you, will have a different rendering at the end of this sentence. uh, The English Standard Version says, you will be blessed. Some other versions like the NASB and I think even the NIV says, but even if you should suffer the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So the ESV says it's a future blessing. Other versions say it's a current blessing. I think it's both. So whatever version we have, maybe we should say, you are and will be blessed. Maybe that would be a better way of putting this because that's what happens. That's what That's what. When you suffer for righteousness, when you suffer for being good, as in this essence, what that is saying, you're blessed. So either rendering is fine because no one will be able to harm believers in the future day when Christ comes again. And you do receive a blessing when you actually act in this way here and now on this earth. What did Jesus say? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, these wonderful verses, when he went to the Sermon on the Mount and he was, he was talking to his disciples. Matthew 5.10 tells us this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Sounds very much like Peter here, doesn't it? For they, for theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus was saying, you are blessed if you are persecuted for doing good, both here and now. Both now on earth as you walk the Christian life, but when the future kingdom is also established. Let me move down, verse 14 and 15. And 14 and 15, and we have a, a quote from Isaiah, of all places, it's not going to come up, so I'm not going to bother with that. You just have to try and follow me on this. The next um, bit of verse is this. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's a quote out of Isaiah chapter 8. Now, this seems to be a bit of an important text for Peter. Uh, he's used it previously in chapter 2 when you know, uh, Shabu took us through the fact that we are a chosen people, a, a royal priesthood. There was a quote out of Isaiah 8 just prior to that saying that uh, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense relating to Christ. And uh, Peter uses another quote from Isaiah 8 verses 12 and 13. So if you have your Bibles, just flick back to Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. And I'll give you just a brief overview of what's happening in this part of Scripture. Because it's always important when a New Testament writer uses some Old Testament text. 
there is a purpose in that. Uh, to, to bring out a principle or bring out something about God or, or it's a fulfillment of, of some form of prophecy. This one here, I think, is more principle-based. It's not a, a fulfillment aspect, but there is an element of fulfillment in it. So Isaiah 7 and 8 has this type of thing going on. Uh, the context is that we have two kingdoms in Israel at the time. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom didn't like the southern kingdom very much and wanted to beat up on its brothers. They're both family, right? They're family. And the northern kingdom said, I actually want to go and grab some other mates to help me fight the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom decided, the northern kings of Israel and Aram, which is modern-day Syria, they threatened the southern kingdom, which is Judah, they threatened Ahaz and said, we're going to remove you. We're going to replace you with a certain Tabeel as king in your place. Now, if you were Ahaz, this was probably not good news because the northern kingdom geographically was larger. Syria was larger. They had a lot more people. And the southern kingdom was smaller. It was just centered around Jerusalem with two tribes, whereas the northern kingdom was ten along with Assyria. So the people and Ahaz were terrified. You read that in, in 7.2. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were concerned. But what through Isaiah is told to Ahaz, the Lord promises that he will preserve Judah. And in fact, that Israel and Aram, or Syria, would be vanquished by Assyria. The Lord would provide a sign to Ahaz to demonstrate his faithfulness. And uh, Judah and the southern kingdom and Ahaz were to respond by trusting in God's promise. So let's read uh, chapter 8. This is where our quote comes from in First Peter. Chapter 8, 11 through 15, I'll read. For the Lord spoke to, uh, thus to me, so he's speaking to Isaiah, with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that is this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So the Lord commands the people not to fear. Even though this plot has been hatched, even though you've got these enemies coming against you, don't fear. The Lord's got it. They should only fear Yahweh. They should only fear Him and put their trust alone in Him. Because He's going to provide a sanctuary. He's going to provide a place where all who fail to trust will stumble and all who fail will be broken. So you can see a little bit why Peter uses this quote. Just as Judah had enemies in the days of Ahaz, so Peter's audience here, those who are scattered throughout Asia, you know, those who are scattered in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
They faced opposition as well in their day. Just as Judah in Isaiah's day was tempted to fear their enemies or fear their foes, so Peter's readers were also liable to fear what their persecutors might do to them. So it's in this way that Peter uses this and he speaks to these believers. And we can take it a step further, can't we? It's the same thing today for you and I. What do we fear and what are we troubled by? What is our response to our fears and our troubles? Well, in the context here, as believers, we should never fear the suffering that unbelievers might bring to us. We should never fear. But we are to trust. Trust that the Lord is the righteous judge. Trust that one day he will administer justice across every sphere of this world. Trust that the Lord will vindicate his own. And that's a, it's a lesson that we need to learn. You know, years ago, Nike brought out a banner, No Fear. I'd like to take it off Nike and give it to us, all right? Because we have the original. Yeah, I only borrowed it from First Peter anyway. So we should have no fear as followers of Christ. Because why? As we'll read later, Christ has won the victory. He has conquered everything. He is reigning supreme. Take courage in that and do not fear me. But fear God. Have no fear. Have no troubles. Have no fear. Have no anxieties. Have no fear But, as the verse says, in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy. If you want another English translation, the NET does a, a good translation of this. Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. If you want to be a, a, a follower of Christ who, who overcomes troubles, overcomes anxieties, overcomes fears, the way of that is to set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. That's the command here in this passage. Peter takes us straight from Isaiah 8.13. In 8.13 he says, Isaiah says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Notice what Peter does with the quote. He, he alters it. He says, set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. So just in the way in Isaiah's time, Yahweh was, was to be honored. For the Christian Christ is to be honored as holy. He's to be set apart in our hearts. He's to be our guiding light. He is to be our focus. 
And when that is the case, fear and trouble dissipate. There's another side of this. This is a a sort of a declarative type command. When you set Christ apart in your heart, you're acknowledging who Christ is. You're acknowledging that he is holy. You're acknowledging that you are uh, according to him, his proper place as Lord. I I would go to suggest if, if you struggle with with things of anxiety, if you struggle with things of trouble, if you struggle with things of fear, you're not putting Christ in the right place in your heart. Because when you place Christ at the center, when you place Christ as Lord, when you consistently look at his holiness, these things will dissipate. We're not to to fear or be troubled by the opposition we face. I know and acknowledge for many of us this is difficult, right? I think about my times uh, prior to being in the ministry, prior to uh, going away to train for the ministry and, and serving you here. I was involved in business for around 21 years. And I understand that these things are difficult in that environment. Because as you go through your career, as you go through climbing the corporate ladder, if that's your your, your bent, unless you're really grounded, unless you are grounded in the beliefs and you're setting Christ apart in your hearts as holy, it can take a huge toll on your life and family. Because inside that environment, consistently, your values are being bombarded by counter-values. Right? The temptation inside that environment to, to climb the ladder or to improve one's position can always lead to the temptation of compromise. Compromising the truth that you know is true and, and the integrity that you know is important. These temptations are constant inside the world system. You know, everyone's doing it, so maybe I should. That's the culture of our business, so therefore I'll, I'll follow that line. Well, don't compromise. Set Christ apart in your hearts. That's what we're commanded to do. Set Christ apart in your hearts through the power of his grace in your life. It's only his grace that enables you to do that. That's important to remember. You know, I know that there, there, there are many opportunities to, to strive after material well-being at the expense of family life. At the expense of your relationship with the Lord. Think about those things. And set Christ apart in your heart. You see, what happens is in the world in which we live and in the society in which we work, 
you start developing a fear of man as opposed to a fear of God. But we're commanded to be different in this world. And a sure sign of our difference is communicated in the following verses. Here it says, okay, if you set your, your hearts to honor Christ as Lord, a couple of things are going to happen. You'll always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. The hope that is in you. That is a major thing as part of our testimony in a world that is screaming out for hope. We read in this letter, this is the third time he's used the word hope. Right at the start he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. As a Christian, folks, you have a living hope. Display it. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. These are the hope that we have. The hope that the fact is that we will one day be consummated. We will be glorified. It's another way of putting it. And here... He says, that is the hope that you tell others about. If you're setting your heart on Christ, it's going to naturally come out and, and, and you want to tell others about the hope that you have. You know, to explain our hope is the counter side to what we, we discussed last week where we are to bless, but to explain our hope is to give a reason for the, the, the cause and the, and the love that we have for Christ within us. So it's a balance. Yes, if someone reviles, if someone slanders, you bless them. But if someone asks, what is it that's different about you? You explain it. We explain it to all who are asked, and we do it with the appropriate attitude. Please note the attitude here with gentleness and respect. And when this occurs, you have a good conscience. So those that are slandered, those that are reviling you, those that, that uh, have angst against you, will be dealt with by God. When I revile and mock you because the hope and trust you put in him, realize that is a, it is a anger against God. It's an anger against the hope that you have in you. I know it's hard not to take it personally, but realize that you're an ambassador of Christ. And that's the reason people are slandering and reviling you. So have no fear. And continue to give people a reason for the hope that is in you. The challenge to you in that is, you know, you're all in environments where you have people that are slandering and reviling you and are really, they, they get into you because of your faith. Get on your knees. 
Get on your knees and pray for your enemies. Pray for the opportunity to continue to give those folks a reason for the hope that is in you. A living hope. A hope that one day is going to be realized when Christ returns. In the verse 17, we have a little bit of a proverb. It, it just says, hey, if you're going to suffer, it's better to suffer for good. Don't suffer for what is evil. And remember that in your suffering, um, uh, God is part of God's will that you do good in that suffering. Let's move on. Let's read the next section. The next section, actually, in the original language is just one long sentence. Thankfully, in our English, I've broken up into a couple. So it'd be a, you have to take a deep breath. So uh, let's just read this next little bit together. We now move away from the Christian and believer suffering for righteousness' sake, and we look at the prime example. We look at Christ. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight, persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you as, uh, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This has been described as one of the most uh, tricky passages in the entire New Testament because there's some unusual terms inside this passage. Um, For me to try and help you with this, uh, understand this passage... I think you should always put it in the frame of the main purpose of the book. What's the main purpose of the book? Now, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's the reason Peter wrote. He wants us as believers to understand the grace that is ours and how that should show our actions to the world around about us. I'd like to firstly summarize this passage and then just make some brief comments. This is not going to be an exhaustive summary, and I was thinking about this, and I know there'll be some here that may want to go really deep into this passage. Um, my offer to you there is perhaps next Sunday afternoon, straight after service, we could, if you're interested, come and see me, and we'll get a group together and have a look at some of the different nuances in there. But that's okay. But I want to give you the general broad brushstrokes here. In 1 Peter 2.21, we're introduced to the sufferings of Christ. Right? If you go back to chapter 2, you see uh, 2.21, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And verses 22 to 25 talks about Christ suffering on the cross, a cruel, cruel death for the sin of the world. It's a direct allusion to Isaiah 53. And these sufferings are an example for us to follow according to to the word here. 
in the section we've just discussed, 13 through 17, we have provided the rationale for suffering. In this section, we do not have Christ's patient endurance in view. Okay? But we have Christ's suffering resulting in glory. This is where the passage goes. You start with, he suffered once for all, and the end result is he is now has everything subjected to him, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. We read through the Gospels, you see this major theme flowing through. Suffering precedes glory. So therefore, I think the point of this passage is, is not that believers imitate Christ's suffering. It's instead, it assures us that Christ has overcome death and reigns victorious over the forces of evil. That's the main point of the passage here. Because of Christ's work on the cross, he is now victorious over all of the universe. And that provides great assurance. Because when Christ has overcome death and reigns victorious, there is a major implication for us who follow Christ. It means also that we will tread the same path. Our suffering will lead to glory. We can be confident in the fact because Christ has done it, he also will lead us to glory. See, the way of suffering always leads to glory and divine vindication. We read in verse 18 these wonderful verses, wonderful summary of Christ's suffering and the purpose of it. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is our hope, folks. This is what Christ has done on our behalf. I'm just going to briefly cover the depth of this verse in, in, in three or four simple phrases for you. Firstly, his suffering and his sacrifice and his death was exemplary. What do I mean by that? Only he could do that. Only he could be the perfect one, the perfect God-man that could bridge this gap between heaven and earth, between the sin of man and the glories of heaven. You may not understand this, but as human beings, we are separated from a holy God. We are separated by our sin. How do I know we're separated by our sin? Because each one of us die. The wages of sin is death. That's what Romans talks about. We, by nature as humans, are separated from God because we die. But this sacrifice of Jesus, a sacrifice once for sins, on the cross, the righteous one. He is the righteous one. The only righteous one for the unrighteous. 
for those who are separated by sin. His sacrifice was perfect. And his sacrifice is the only way of salvation. The only way of salvation. He also was our substitute, if you read here, for also Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He is our substitute in this process. We cannot bring ourselves to God. We can try to be morally good. We can try to keep the law. We can try to work our way towards God. We can try to do all the yeses and all the right things. That will not bring you to God. The only thing that brings you to God is believing and trusting in the fact that Christ is your substitute. He is your substitute. He is the only way of salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. On that, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only way of salvation is to rest on your substitute, on Christ. On him was laid the iniquity of us all, the sins of all of us. You read that in the verse, once for sins, all of them. So he died in my place so that I might have eternal life. I may be able to break away from these bonds of death and have eternal life because that's what is promised if you put your faith in Christ. The other thing is his death The sacrificial death is sufficient. So not only is he the only perfect one that can do it, not only is he our substitute, this death is sufficient. No more sin, no more penalty needs to be paid. God's wrath is completely satisfied in the precious sacrifice of his son. His blood cleanses us and washes our sin away. It removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? A long way. A long way. Praise God he has done that. Praise God that his sacrifice is perfect. It is our substitute and it is sufficient. No more do we need to go to the altar. Once for all. Do you have that experience in your own life and heart today? Do you have the security and the knowledge of knowing that that Christ has died on your behalf, that Christ is your substitute, that Christ is sufficient and grants eternal life? My prayer is you do. If you don't, come and talk to us. Talk to the person that brought you because this is essential, important part of this text we also see in this text and I'm going to skip through some of the middle verses for the sake of time we see that because of his suffering and death it leads to his glorification therefore through his merciful and gracious sacrifice he has conquered he's conquered death 
And he is our conquering king if we put our faith and trust in him. Jesus reigns over all of his creation. He reigns over the demons. He reigns over the heavenly authorities. He reigns over angels. Angels. He reigns over all powers. That's what this first this sentence tells us. His name. Be assured you'll be slain to glory. Because Christ has walked that path. A living hope. A hope that rests fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the final consummation of all things, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 13. So friends, this morning, it's a challenge for those of you who know and have faith in Christ. Are you suffering for doing good? Do you fear men more than fearing God? Turn to God, fear God. Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts because he has won the victory. He has walked the path of suffering which leads to glory. With gentleness and respect, give the reason for the hope that is in you. That's our responsibility. That's what it means to go into all nations and make disciples. If you don't know Christ, I just want you to pause and reflect upon what you've heard this morning. This passage we've just read shows that Christ died for you. His sacrifice and his death and his resurrection are for you. His sacrifice is sufficient to cover all your sin past, present, and future. He is your substitute. So my appeal to you today is don't leave today without calling upon the name of the Lord. He is the only way of salvation. Now is the time. Now is the day. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do not quench the spirit of God's prompting. Do not turn your hearts against God. Repent of your sin and call to the only gracious one who can save. Ask the Lord to surround you with his grace and his gift of eternal life. Let me pray and invite the music team up to to sing our last song. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the all-sufficient, all-perfect, sacrificial, conquering Son of God, Christ our Savior. We thank you that by no other name under heaven can a person be saved than placing faith and trust in Christ. Father, it's our appeal this morning that as your spirit works within us that you will draw us closer to you. Father, you'll encourage us if we have our full faith and trust in you to to set, continually set Christ apart in our hearts. And Father, we pray for those who don't know you who are sitting here. Father, we pray that your spirit will work in their hearts. Regenerate them, we pray, O Lord. 
enable them to cry out in, in mercy to seek your grace. We pray these things in the powerful name of Christ, the risen Saviour.